He was one of these people that always wore a three-piece suit. And he was talking to us, and he, he pulled out a tablet from his suit and said, this is a receipt for a welding job done on a chariot in Babylon. He was the professor of Assyriology at London University. He was such an impressive guy. He had a, a, a deep personal faith, and he knew all there was to know about Assyria and about Babylon. So he was a bit of a hero to those of us that knew him. Welcome to Mid-South Viewpoint. This is Ronnie Stevens standing in for our regular host, Byron Tyler. Today we have uh, an international guest who's going to bring a European perspective to us. Alec Clellan is a resident of Munich, Germany, where he's lived for 40 years. He convened an international uh, court in three languages at the European Patent Office, where he was a judge till his retirement a few years ago. He was born in Glasgow, spent 12 years in Scotland, then spent the next 20 years in England, where he graduated from the University of London, and then since that time, he's lived in Munich on the continent of, of Germany. He's got a British passport and a German passport. Uh, he had an Austrian mother, so he's uh, perfectly bilingual, trilingual really, and a true European. I lived in Europe a good number of years myself, and I'll tell you what you already know, namely that Europe is a very, very secular place. And to discover uh, a male European committed to the Lord Jesus Christ and the Lord's work is not a common thing there. So I view Alec as a very exceptional and uncommon believer. As a missionary, I want to know why. I want to know how that happened. And I'd just like to ask you, Alec, to speak now a little bit to your background, your background in Austria, your background uh, in the UK, and tell us a little bit about um, maybe I would almost say this, the secular commitments of your parentage and your grandparentage and how you came to faith. Yes, of course, Ronnie. Well, as you've already said, I was brought up in Scotland for 12 years. We went to church there, to a church of Scotland, and I went to Sunday school like everybody else. But it was just something that everybody did. It's a bit like the southern U.S. in the sense that most people went to church, whether they believed or not. And so we would go along. Then when we moved to England when I was 12, we stopped going to church. There was no pressure to do it anymore, no social pressure. So my father stopped going, and I stopped going. And then when I was a bit older yet... Um, I got involved in a Bible class, Crusaders it was called in those days, and we would meet on a Sunday afternoon, we would go for swimming together, stuff like that, and I learnt about the gospel, but I never actually made a personal commitment, but it fertilised the field, so to speak, and as a result, uh, when I was a bit older, when I was 16, I went on a camping expedition with some friends, and we sat, we lay rather, looking up at the stars, and one of them said, don't you think there must be a God to create such a universe? And I thought about it, and I thought, maybe maybe there is, maybe there's a God. And this guy took me to church, and um, I came to a personal faith. The pastor had an altar call, and I went forward. And from that age on, I've followed Christ, that's from the age of 16 onwards. Um, I went to university in London, as you've already said. I attended one of the big London churches, St. Helen's Bishopsgate, where I got a really thorough grounding in the gospel and in the scriptures. And that has stayed with me for the rest of my life. Um, a lot of things that happen to you when you're young, you, you keep. And that's certainly one of them. So that's how I became a Christian. 
So when I came to Munich, I wanted to be involved in Christian work. Um, that was at the age of 32, after working in London for some years. It turned out that um, there were a couple of small English churches, but nothing very exciting. Mary and I, my wife that is, went to one of these churches, and together with some other folks, we thought we really need a decent English-language evangelical church in Munich. And so five families got together, that was in the 1980s, 85 I think it was, and uh, we started meeting, and then we looked for a pastor, and one of the candidates was a guy called Ronnie Stevens, and that's how you and I met. We'll keep this on your autobiography, not mine. (laughs) Knowing Alex as I do, I'll tell you he had two things going against him, at least on a percentage basis, uh, touching upon his likelihood to ever come to faith. One was a very secular European background, except for his first few years in Scotland. Uh, The other is the fact that uh, Alec is very technical and scientific. His his interests are on, on that left side of the brain, and... He, he actually, in terms of his professional life at the European Patent Office, he's lectured worldwide, actually, on the patentability of, of intellectual property. And, uh, and he really has a passion about science as an avocation. And I won't call it a crisis of faith, but, Alec, I remember once you're relating to me a great challenge to your faith as you looked at the Bible, as you looked at the scientific data, and you told me once of a conversation you had with uh, the great D.J. Wiseman, the professor of Assyriology at the University of, of London, who was quite um, quite a layman in terms of his involvement in Christian ministry. Tell us a little bit about Professor Wiseman. Tell us a little bit about that challenge and how the great professor helped you. Well, Professor Wiseman was in a small brethren fellowship that was only a few miles from where we lived. And we knew his daughter. We got invited round to the house, and he would sit and talk to us. He was one of these people that always wore a three-piece suit. And he was talking to us, and he, he pulled out a tablet from his suit and said, this is a receipt for a welding job done on a chariot in Babylon. He was the professor of Assyriology at London University. He was such an impressive guy. He had a, a, a deep personal faith, and he knew all there was to know about Assyria and about Babylon So he was a bit of a hero to those of us that knew him. But to go on to your other question, Donald Wiseman wrote one of the sections of the New Bible Dictionary and the New Bible Commentary as well. Um, He was very highly regarded in Britain. And as I say, he was a personal friend. The other aspect of Donald Wiseman and some of the people that he associated with was the interface between science and faith. Uh, Wiseman was very interested in this, very concerned about it. It's something that's always interested me. How can you be a Bible-believing Christian? And, for example, do you have to be a creationist, or is it possible for a Bible-believing Christian to believe in some form of guided evolution, for example? In Britain, I would say that most Christians probably believe in some kind of guided evolution, but I also realize that most Christians in the States would not accept that and would regard themselves as creationists. I envy your memories in terms of the privilege of living in London in the 60s and 70s. Um, For the first part of the 60s, uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones was holding forth at uh, Westminster Chapel. John Stott until 1975, the vicar at All Souls, Langham Place, next to the BBC. 
And I remember you're telling me once of attending, I think it was not a formal academic lecture, but something like a chapel message or an intervarsity outreach where the great Sir Norman Anderson, J.N.D. Anderson, was lecturing, the great Egyptologist, and he was challenged on his lecture. Can you remember that? Would you tell us a little bit about that? He was the professor of Arabic literature, I believe, as well as everything else. The guy had a brain that's much bigger than mine, and he talked to us about the challenge of Islam, even in those days. This was in the 19, late 1960s. So we had to think about that even then. And nowadays, of course, it's a major topic for all of us. I'm going to remind you of something that you told me that maybe made a bigger impression on me in the retelling that it that it made on you as an eyewitness, because you, you probably told me 35 years ago, but you told me that he was actually challenged in a lecture you heard him give by two Egyptians who were, of course, um, advocating strongly for the Muslim position. And Professor Anderson actually repudiated their thesis by quoting from the Quran in Arabic. That's right. Do you remember that? I remember that. You did. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not able to do that, but I'm, but I'm glad that there are people in the world who, who can do it. Now, what I haven't mentioned is that you've actually been heavily involved in planting two churches. Take us to school a little bit on what we understand as post-Christian Europe. What does that mean? Also, I'd love for you to contrast the challenges of Christianity, evangelical, biblical Christianity, in Britain as opposed to, say, Germany and Austria. Why is it harder in a place like Munich to plant an evangelical church than it would be, say, in a place like the Mid-South, where we are right now? Well, post-Christian Europe means different things in different countries. Uh, In Britain, the national church is still the Anglican church, which is a form of the Episcopalian church. And the problem there has been that it's become all things to all men. It doesn't have a clear evangelical witness any longer. There are many evangelical churches, but it's touch and go whether the evangelical Anglican church can stay within the evangelical community, the the Anglican community as a whole, because of the divergence in in theology among the different churches. The Archbishop of Canterbury tries very hard to hold everybody together, But there are so many issues in which um, Anglicans disagree that it's looking very unlikely. And a problem has been um, disgraceful behavior by some pastors. Uh, That's true in many countries. I know it's true in the States as well. But this has made the press in Britain, and it has really diminished the prestige of the Anglican Church. And that's a big shame. However, Britain does have a lot of vibrant, growing evangelical churches, tend to be charismatic, but not all. Um, We've had some excellent teachers over the years. Right now, there aren't really that many outstanding figures like there were in the past, like Martin Lloyd-Jones or Dick Lucas or John Stott. But nevertheless, there are some good teachers there. Um, Germany is different. In Germany, surprisingly perhaps, the church is more respected than in Britain. And unless you actively try to leave your church, you are always a member so that uh, you actually pay a percentage of your income, a very small percentage, but a percentage nevertheless directly through your income tax to the church. Now, again, in Germany, as in Britain, because of bad behavior, um, because of sin, basically, on the part of some pastors, people have been leaving the church in greater numbers. Nevertheless, I'll give you a small example. Uh, Our town is a town of 12,000, and they built a bypass around the town. And we went along to see the bypass open. One one of the big national politicians came along to cut the ribbon, 
But before he cut the ribbon, the Lutheran pastor and the Catholic priest both said prayers. We sang a hymn, and Mary and I looked at each other, and we thought, this is a good reason for staying in Germany, that the Christian faith is still respected. Twice a week, I go walking with a friend, and as we walk, we walk past a small chapel, and on the chapel wall, it says, God protect our homeland. You look inside the chapel, it's big enough for three or four people, that's all. Every time I've been there, and I've been there repeatedly over the years, but every time there are candles burning in that chapel, somebody's been there and been praying in that chapel. That's an encouraging thing to see. So you've actually been involved in the planting of two churches. It hasn't been easy in one case, because of my personal knowledge, I know it was a bit heartbreaking. What would you say to somebody, let's say an American seminarian who had a vision to come plant a church in Germany? What would be your counsel to him? What would be the positive things? What would be the disincentives? Well, can we start by talking about short-term missions? Please be my guest. One of the embarrassing things you see is young American kids running around saying to people, do you speak English? Now, how are you going to witness to somebody if you can't speak their language? That really is a problem. So I can't personally see a whole lot of point in these short-term mission trips to places like Germany. It may be different in other places. Um, when it comes to uh, uh, working in, in Germany, th- th- there are huge numbers of um, foreign nationals for whom English is the main second language. In most of Eastern Europe now, English is the second language that they're taught. So a lot of East Europeans are very happy to speak English. And the result is that English language churches generally have done fairly well um, in various German towns. And Munich is one of them. Munich has, I believe it's five English language churches now including the two that uh, we've been involved in. Um, for a American coming over and wanting to get involved in starting a church, I do think unless you speak some German, it's going to be very, very hard for you. It's going to be difficult for your family. It's going to be hard for you to deal with the authorities. In, in many ways, Germany is a more legalistic country than the States. There are too many bits of papers that you will need And unless you can deal with the authorities, you're going to find it quite difficult to get those bits of paper. So I'd encourage anyone who wants to come to, first of all, learn German to a reasonable standard. I'm interested mainly in in the the national or the cultural resistance. I would assume that somebody would be committed to learn the language and would really want to plant a German church. The international uh, English-speaking scene is a bit different. I'm interested in, in Germany, qua Germany as Germany. And and along with that, you can speak to that, but it may be simplistic, but as a non-German, I would say that maybe it's not too simplistic to say that Germany was the first nation as a nation to believe the Bible because of Luther, and that Germany was the first, at least Protestant nation, to reject the Bible through the so-called science of the higher criticism, which originally was a German phenomenon, a phenomenon of, of German scholarship. Obviously, a great contribution to the truth of the phrase post-Christian Europe. Would you just maybe speak to those points? Well, a peculiarity of Germany is that different religions are very regional in Germany. If, if you remember, in the Treaty of Augsburg, it was said, Cuius religio, eos religio, meaning that the duke had the right to choose what religion your area had. So some areas of Germany are solidly Lutheran, some are solidly Catholic. Even some towns differ. For example, Nuremberg is Protestant, and Munich is Catholic. 
Augsburg is Protestant and so on. So it varies depending on the area very much. The other aspect of uh, Germany is that the fact that the two main religions, there are only two main religions for most Germans, Lutheran and Catholic. And if you're not one of those two, you must be some kind of a sect. So it makes it quite difficult for people from outside to come in and explain that they're not a sect. Uh, I remember when we first started going and talking to the Lutheran pastor who was responsible for relations with sects. And as far as he was concerned, we were just another sect, even though we were, in our terms, a free evangelical church. He had a book about an inch and a half thick of the rules that the Lutheran church had to obey, and we couldn't obviously obey those because we weren't Lutherans. And so we were not allowed to use a Lutheran church to meet in, for example. We met, first of all, in a small um, independent church, and then in a Methodist church. And now we meet in a vineyard church, but we've moved around over the years. There was also a free evangelical church involved. Incidentally, um, the free evangelical churches are really expanding in southern Germany. Most Germans regard Lutheranism as something from East Germany and from North Germany. But lots of North Germans have come down to Munich to work in BMW, for example, or Siemens or one of the other big companies based there. So there are far more Protestants and therefore far more evangelicals than there used to be. And so the evangelical church has really grown. I lived in Germany myself a few years, and I was amazed at just how impressive Germans are as an outsider looking in as an American used to living in one of the superpowers, and yet Germans were so enterprising, so organized, so purposeful, rather like an ant colony (laughs) in terms of everybody had a role and they were playing that role well. Going back to the fact that the Reformation was actually birthed, I suppose there was more than one birthplace of the Reformation, Wycliffe in England, Huss in Bohemia, the Czech Republic, almost as early as Luther, a little bit later, Calvin in Geneva. Would you care to speculate on why, after a few hundred years, this wonderful beginning was not a sufficient uh, barrier to the uh, expansionism and aggression of Germany, World War One, the horror of the Nazis and how the traditional church, I guess, was complicit with the Nazis, didn't really resist. Of course, there's the great heroic example of Bonhoeffer, but by and large, there wasn't sufficient uh, resistance to slow Hitler down very much. You've lived in Germany a long time. You're fluent in the language. Speak to that, please. Well, I think you have to go back further than World Wars One and Two. I think you have to go back to the wars of the 17th century when the Protestant and the Catholic areas fought each other for 30 years. Well, it was 100 years uh, in total. 1618, 1648, basically. That, yeah, basically, yeah. It went on for a long, long time, and it gave rise to the Enlightenment, the idea that in the public arena, we should leave religion out of it because it's too dangerous, likely to cause difficulties. So Germany wasn't quite as Christianized as uh, maybe you might think for that very reason. The, the, the elite were inclined towards deism or rationalism of some sort. That made it difficult. I'll give you an example of of how split Germany was. Uh, My wife has a piano teacher who she still has lessons from, even though she's in her 70s now. And he said that when he was a boy, his parents would not allow him to play Bach at home because Bach was a Protestant. So he was banned from that. One thing about Germany compared to 
Britain or compared to the States is that Germany has a very clear idea of its own sins. And every German school kid gets taken to the concentration camp at Dachau if they live in Munich. Uh, if they can find one, they will invite concentration camp survivors to come in and speak to the classes. So they know uh, their faults. They know their mistakes. I think going back to the question about why Germany was prepared to go to war, why they behaved so badly towards the Jews, why they murdered so many people, my only explanation is human sin. I don't think it was peculiar to the Germans. They were considered a cultured people. And it's a, it's a mystery as to why people like that should suddenly become so obsessed uh, with finding fault in somebody else. They were trying to find a reason for why they had failed in World War I and why they had lost so much territory. So blaming it on the Jews, blaming it on the communists was, was a way out of it. And it's always dangerous when fear is what drives us. Why would any native German speaker attend an international English-speaking church in a place like Munich? Why would that happen? What would the attraction be? Well, when I was at work, a lot of the time I would go there by public transport, and you would hear school kids talking to each other in English, practicing their English, because it was cool to speak English. And that's true for um, older Germans as well. It's cool to have good English. By the way, Germany... Has always had a, a soft spot for America. They're very fond of America, even though they don't agree with everything America does, but they like Americans. America behaved well towards Germany after the war, and they haven't forgotten that. I don't want to tempt you to uh, be too hard on your host country here. Um, most of our listeners are pretty um, patriotic in their personal opinions and political opinions. But I do want to give you an opportunity, respectfully, to answer this question. If you could say a word of exhortation and maybe even instruction to the place of your birth, the UK, if you could uh, share a word of instruction to Germany and or Austria, because you kind of straddle those two cultures with an Austrian mother being a German resident, and if you could say a word of, of exhortation or even instruction to American Christians we're going to unleash you and let you hold forth on that in <laughs> the final few minutes of our segment. Okay. Britain is a classic example of a country that's neither hot nor cold. They've got a kind of interest in religion, but not in the faith. It's a very sad place, Britain, in many ways. The alcohol rate is going up. Uh, drugs are a problem. Gambling is a big problem. They haven't reached rock bottom yet, but I fear they will. It's not doing well as a country. So my exhortation to Britain would be to repent and strengthen what remains. Um, I think also in Britain, the political parties have not done a good job. You get the government you deserve sometimes, and I'm afraid that's the case in Britain to a large extent. Germany, interesting difference between Britain and Germany is that there's a German word, serious, which basically means serious, someone to be taken seriously. And Germans like their politicians to be serious. They don't like entertainers, they don't like clowns, they don't like people who exaggerate. So German politicians tend to be very measured, very careful. Angela Merkel was the classic German politician, never did anything unless she had to. And we see now the, the faults of, in that and the mistakes that she made. But nevertheless, she was very popular among Germans and still is very popular among Germans, despite um, the fact that she was too weak on, on Russia, for example. As for German Christians, I've said already that the loss of prestige of the church caused by sin among its pastors 
has had a huge impact on individuals. It's no secret that most Catholic priests uh, have a housekeeper. And housekeeper, in inverted commas, our local priest had one, for example. Uh, I met her and uh, it turned out she wasn't a housekeeper at all. She was a social worker, but she just happened to um, be with him. So uh, it would be good for the Catholic Church if they could sort out that problem. I think we would all agree that sexuality is one of those areas of human life that we all have to be very careful about how we handle our thought life, how we handle other the other sex. And I don't see how you can really be successful at that if you simply refuse to allow your priests or your pastors to get married. So that's a personal view on that. I do see great potential in Germany. I do see a lot of growth in the evangelical churches. And one surprising area of growth has been the number of Germans that have come out of Russia who had a personal faith. After the Berlin Wall fell, after Gorbachev, many, many ethnic Germans came from Russia to live in Germany, and it turned out that quite a large proportion of them were believers. Mennonites, for example, brethren, all sorts of people. And they have made a big difference to the German church. They've really helped the German church in many ways. So I find that very positive. Now, talking about America, uh, I'm living in your home, I'm eating your food, it's not done to bite the hand that feeds you, so I'll be careful what I say. I do think American Christians have got too closely identified with one particular political party. Now, in Britain, the Methodists were originally the foundation of the Labour Party, which in American terms would be the Socialist Party. So there's been a strong strand of Christian socialism in Britain in addition to um, the Conservative Party, which were always considered... The the Church of England was always considered to be the Conservative Party at prayer. So you had two strands of faith who would work together and still do in Parliament. They still have multi-party prayer meetings. I don't know whether Congress has that in America. I hope so. So that makes a big difference, that you can be either a socialist or you can be a conservative, but you can still be a Christian. And I miss that in America. Okay, fair enough. I'd love to um, hear your opinion on what's happening in the eastern part of Europe, but we're all preoccupied here with the invasion of Ukraine, but we're out of time. It's been great. My guest has been Alec Cleland, who is the chairman of a board of appeal in the European Patent Office in Munich, a court which convenes in three languages, English, German, and French. He's a quintessential European, and he's a believer, and that's a little bit rare for a serious male intellectual diplomat to be a committed believer and even a church planter, even somebody who takes missions trips to places like India. So, Alec, it's been a delight. Thank you. Thank you, Ronnie. Once again, this is Ronnie Stevens sitting in for Byron Tyler, our normal host on Mid-South Viewpoint. <laughs>